1: In Proverbs 29, verse 20, do you see a man who is hasty in his words? There's more hope for a fool than for him. Humorously, sometimes words do just, don't they seem to get out of your mouth before you really expect them to sometimes? You can feel them in your throat and then when you hear them, it's, it's too late to, too late to stop them. Or you might say the right thing only at the wrong time. This is one of my favorites that I, that I typically do. I do like, a wel- I'm coming into someone's home and they're greeting us and I say, welcome. I go, well, where did that come from? I'm not welcoming them. So it's just, you know, you know how the words go. Or sometimes we decide to say something, then in the middle of it we decide to say something else and the words get all discombobulated. Well, formulas like this are not what the Proverbs is talking about in this place. One of the great themes of the Proverbs, though, is that words... Uh, and our tongues, the words we speak, uh, are these are many of the aspects of uh, of sin which we fall into. Uh, we sin with our mouths more than any other way. Those strife, those quarrels, their broken friendships, wounded friends, all come from the sins of words or our tongue. God's wisdom is simple. In James one, know this, my beloved brothers: let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. there's an element of pride in the hasty and impulsive talker like this proverb is talking about. Fools say all that's on their minds. They say way more than is necessary or than has been asked for. But a wise man will listen carefully to see if he ought to tell what he knows or not. Others usually do not want to know your opinion or thoughts until they ask for it. And then they want you to stay on topic and only say things that have been confirmed as true and good and beautiful. Sinning like this can happen in our writing as well. So be cautious before replying with a hasty email or posting your most recent impulsive thought. Slow men are better than fast men, and rushed things will get you in trouble. Hear the Apostle Paul in Colossians chapter 4. Let your speech be always gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. This reminds us of our need to confess our sins. Please kneel where you are if you're willing.
2: In the 19th century there was a group of ships that sent out from England to search for the North Pole. The journey was to take two to three years. Each ship carried an additional steam engine, but only a 12-day supply of coal. Instead of additional coal, each ship made room for a library with 1,200 books, a hand organ that played 50 songs, china place settings, cut glass goblets, and sterling silver flatware. The expedition carried no special clothing for the Arctic, only the standard uniforms for the British Navy. Years later, Arctic Eskimos came across the frozen remains of the expedition. The men were dressed in their naval finery and pulling a lifeboat loaded with the sterling silver. Their lack of planning is beyond comprehension, but perhaps it will motivate us To be better outfitted for our own journey this Advent season. Have you ever been caught unprepared? Jesus spoke about the importance of being ready for his return. This portion of scripture is often included in the Advent season because during Advent we focus on both the first coming of Christ when he became Emmanuel, God with us, to save us from our sins. And we look forward to his second coming when he returns, then in glory, to judge the world and bring forth the completion of his kingdom. So, the point of this parable that Jesus was teaching is simply this that our entrance into God's kingdom depends on our being prepared for the coming of Jesus Christ. In other words, Jesus is saying that the deciding factor as to where you will spend eternity is your preparation or lack of preparation for his return. So Jesus tells the story of ten virgins, ten bridesmaids, who prepared themselves for the arrival of the bridegroom according to the local customs of the day. And he says, if you want to know what it will be like when I return, then just consider these ten bridesmaids. Now, wedding ceremonies were a little different in Israel back then compared to today's American weddings. In fact, I think I would have thought twice about being a bridesmaid back then, because it was a lot of work. So the way it worked was that the groom would arrive at the house of his bride-to-be, and then the bride and the bridesmaids would accompany him in a fancy procession to either his house or his parents, where the wedding ceremony would take place. If you go back in time and attend a Jewish wedding, you'd see the procession making its way through the night, the happy couple led by the light of the bridesmaid's torches. Each bridesmaid had a kettle with a rag. The rag had been soaked in oil and then stuffed into it. And once the rag was lit, the torch burned brightly, lighting up the procession as it made its way through the night. There was one hitch, though. You had to keep adding oil to the kettle in order to keep the torch burning. And as the night goes on and the bridesmaid's wait, for the groom's arrival, they all fall asleep. I was thinking about that as we were, we were seeing, uh, singing that hymn, and it talks about not falling asleep. Well, they all, the good and the bad, they, both fall, they all fell asleep. Okay, So there's a place for, for falling asleep, I think, <laughs> as followers of God. But now comes the important part. In verse 2, Jesus says, Five of them were foolish, five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps but did not take any oil with them. The wise, however took oil in jars along with their lamps. Five of the ladies were prepared, five were not. And when the groom finally arrives, it says they all woke up and trimmed their lamps. So you can just hear the announcement. Places, everybody, here we go. And as they all get in place, some of the torches start to flicker and sputter, signaling that there's only a few minutes left as far as the oil went. Sort of like the gas gauge on your car when the needle touches that red area by the letter E or gets all the way down to eek. And so five of these ladies know there is no way their torches are going to get them all the way to the house. And you know the rest of the story. The the five have to go for more oil and arrive too late. The door's been shut and they cannot enter. In fact, the groom goes so far as to say to them in verse 12, I don't know you. So the all-important lesson is to be prepared. Jesus put it this way in verse 13, Therefore keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour of my return. So Jesus points out two things involved in that preparedness. First, the time given to each of us to prepare is limited. There comes a point when it's too late to prepare, too late to get ready. Yes, the Bible says that the Lord is slow to anger and rich in mercy. But there's a limit to his mercy, and there's a limit to his patience. In each person's life, there comes a point where the time to prepare yourself to meet the Lord runs out. Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father. Often as I'm meeting with people in my office and we're getting to know each other, I'll ask them if, if they have the assurance that they're going to go to heaven, and they'll say, absolutely. And I'll ask, well, if you were to go back out onto Grand River and get slammed by another car and stand before God, and he said, why should I let you into my heaven, how would you respond? And I, let me tell you, I've gotten some very interesting responses over the years. Said with all sincerity, such as, uh, My mom spent in the choir. It's like, Oh, where's that in the Bible? Or, Well, I've led a good life. And I'm thinking, Well, the Bible says any of us with a belly button has received original sin through the sins of Adam and Eve. And so we all have fallen short of God's glory, right? So sometimes people are living under the illusion that they're prepared. But they're not prepared according to the way God tells us to be prepared. Jesus also teaches that individual readiness for Christ cannot be transferred from one person to another. You know, whenever I read this parable as a child, I always got upset at verse 9. The foolish bridesmaids run out of oil and they ask the others for a loan. And what answer did the wise woman give? No, there may not be enough for both us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. That never sounded like a very Christian response to me. Have you thought about that? Did you think about it as it was being read just a few moments ago? I mean, don't we teach our children that when they're young? We share, right? Jesus said, blessed are those who give, right? It's more blessed to give than to receive. Not here. But you see, I was missing the whole point. Common sense told the wise bridesmaids that the oil they brought along would only be sufficient for five torches, not ten. They were prepared and the others were not. And in the same way, when Jesus returns, that's it. No more time to prepare. At that point, your friends can't help you out. Your family can't help you out. In that moment, your own relationship with Jesus Christ Will be the only thing that matters. Psalm 49 says, No one can redeem the life of another or give to God a ransom for him. So, our relationship to Jesus Christ is to be marked by the wisdom of preparation for his coming. So, that's my question to you this second Sunday in Advent. How are you planning for eternity? There will come a day when most of the things that seem so important to you now, career, success, social status, friends, they'll all vanish. Will the Lord find you diligent in your preparation for his return? Will he find you trusting in him alone? Will he find you producing the spiritual fruit that will last for eternity or focus instead on the unimportant? We live in a very materialistic world. It's so easy to go through our day focused on the material rather than on those things that will last for eternity. It's a good thing. There's, there's two points in the year where I like to take a day and just go off on a personal retreat and evaluate things as far as my spiritual condition. And that's... Uh, New Year's Day or New Year's Eve, depending on the year. And then halfway through the year, that happens to be when we got married. So, sometime around the time of our anniversary. And it's, it's good just to take stock, to take inventory. This relationship with God, it's not static. When we, it's like any relationship. You're either moving toward the person or away from them. To so take a look at the fruit of the Spirit which really is the manifestation of what's going on in my heart and in my spirit, and saying, how am I doing in those areas, and to take a look at it. The Bible says now is the day of salvation. Now is the day of God's favor. Jesus told this parable. To point out the negative consequences of being caught unprepared at his return but there's a positive theme to the parable as well and that is this that god calls us to live lives that demonstrate our expectation that he will suddenly return jesus finishes the parable with a command he says therefore keep watch because you do not know the day or the hour of my return how do we do that how do we keep watch i mean We don't even use those words much, right? Sometimes we talk about keeping a vigil for a loved one, maybe in their last days in the hospital or at home. To keep watch, what does that mean until the Lord comes? Luke 12, 36. Jesus described those waiting for his return as those who can immediately open the door for him when he comes and knocks. If the Lord returned today and knocked on your door, how many of us would want to say uh, just a minute because certain areas of our lives aren't in order? Maybe you'd say there's someone I've offended and I need to go and apologize. Or maybe you'd say, well, with all the stress and busyness of this past month or two, perhaps I've, I've withheld spending time with my spouse or with my kids, and I need to do that first. Or perhaps we'd say there's... There's someone that I've been too busy to encourage and I need to reach out and affirm that person. Or there's someone I know who's been wandering away from the faith and I haven't had the courage to confront them, to speak the words of truth that they need to hear. This time of year we sing, Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let every heart prepare him room. So how do you prepare room for the Lord? How do you prepare room in your heart for him? Well, it's not by busyness or shopping or entertaining. Those all have their place. But the way to prepare him room is by obeying him and by pursuing intimacy with him. It requires some serious self-examination. And that needs to be done before God. And then some hard changes, lifestyle changes. Important changes in the, in the secret areas of your life. You know, the beauty of the church year is that every year the four weeks of Advent give us a fresh opportunity to recommit ourselves to pursuing intimacy with God. To say as Paul did, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Perhaps this fall you've been running at a frantic pace and you haven't even had the time to seek out quiet places that would nourish your soul. The still waters where you can see his reflection. But if you're overly busy, then you can't enjoy genuine intimacy with God. Richard Swenson uh, wrote a book called Margins years ago. And if you look at the margins on a piece of paper, they're differing sizes, right? If you were creating a document on the computer, you can choose the size of those margins, right? And what he says is that we all need a certain amount of healthy margin space in our lives. The blankness, the open space on the page. And the world we live in is getting busier and busier, and the margins are getting smaller and smaller. And what do we do with that? I notice when I'm calling someone up to volunteer for something, if they have a healthy set of margin, let's say, uh, let's say they're filled at maybe 80 percent and they've got 20 percent margin, and then if I say, "Well, we've got an opening in this area. Uh, would you be willing to uh, consider volunteering in that area?" Okay, the person with a healthy margin says. Yeah, I'll pray about that and I'll see what the Lord does and um, who knows, maybe maybe he's calling me to that, maybe he isn't. But I'll pray about it and I'll get back to you. Now if I call with the same request to somebody who's living at a hundred percent, so zero margin, then what's their response when I ask them to volunteer? They start telling me about how busy they are, right? And well I'm already doing this and I'm doing that and I'm and I'm working and I've got a second job and you know, I'm having to shuttle my kids to their activities, and my my uh, mom or my dad is uh, up in Traverse City with a stroke, and so I'm having to go up there, and uh, so that's a different response, right? But then, if I call the person who is like has n- no margin and like negative margin, if you can call, like the words are going right off the page, okay? Now you have to go up to a bigger piece. Uh, what's their response to the same request? They're hostile. They start shouting at me on the phone. I can't believe you're even asking me, don't you know what I, what's going on? And then they're just off and, and running. Do you see the difference there? There needs to be a healthy amount of margin in our lives. Even Jesus with all the people that he was, you remember in, in the opening part of Mark, all the people he's, he's healing, he's casting out demons and all that. But then the next morning it says, while it was still dark, he goes off to be with his father to get his marching orders for the day, because there will be always things calling to us. Lots of good things. And sometimes we have to say no to, to good things in order to say yes uh, to the best things. Well, I want to tell you about another British explorer, Ernest Shackleton. In 1914, he led a team of 28 men toward the opposite pole to the South Pole in hopes of being the first expedition to cross the continent of Antarctica. His ship, the Endurance, became stuck in the ice, though, where it drifted for 10 months before finally sinking. Shackleton and his crew left the ship, towing light boats over the ice until they reached the open sea. And they landed on an island called Elephant Island, and that's where they set up a very crude camp. Shackleton decided the only way to save his men was to take five of them in a lifeboat and journey 800 miles in order to secure another ship and supplies. Can you imagine setting out in a lifeboat? Well, first of all, towing it, and then uh, where you could, I guess. What are you, boating it? I don't know what you call (laughs) the verb, but figure it out. Uh, 800 miles, though, just to get another ship with supplies and then time to come back. But time after time... He failed to return to Elephant Island once he got the ship and the supplies. And it was all because of the ice. For months, his men waited in a hut made of rocks with the lifeboats on top serving as the roof. Finally, an opening appeared in the sea through the ice, and it allowed Shackleton to reach the island. His men were ready and waiting. They quickly scrambled on board, and the boat turned around and headed out. No sooner had the boat cleared their narrow escape when the ice crashed back together. That whole window of time to get in and out was 30 minutes. Shackleton later asked his men, how was it that you were all packed and ready to go? I mean, you were standing on the shore, ready to leave at a moment's notice. And his second in command said, we never gave up hope that you would come back for us. Whenever the sea was... Partly clear of ice, we rolled up our sleeping bags and packed our things, saying, the boss may come today. What a great example of being prepared. Their eager expectation, their daily preparation, and their trust in the character of their leader should inspire us in our own heart preparations this Advent. Our message today is titled, Home for Christmas. And by that, I mean, do you want to find yourself kneeling in Bethlehem on Christmas Eve? Enjoying an intimacy with the Lord that you've never known. It can start today on this second Sunday in Advent. There's nothing, absolutely nothing, of greater importance than knowing Christ intimately. Jesus said, you need to make room in your heart for me now. Paul emphasizes that connection between worship and intimacy with God. When he says in Romans 12, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy... To offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, for this is your true and proper worship. The paraphrased version of that text in the message from Eugene Peterson says So here's what I want you to do God helping you, take your everyday, ordinary life, your sleeping, your eating, your going to work, and walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for him. Don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. You'll be changed from the inside out. Readily recognize what he wants from you and quickly respond to us. Advent is a time for us to prepare room for Christ in our lives and in our hearts. And so I challenge you in the coming weeks to try using the events and the tasks and the interactions of the day as prompts for worship. In those moments, make your worship practical by following the three actions described in Romans 12. Fix your attention on God, recognize what he wants from you, and quickly respond to it. At the end of the day, reflect on your efforts. What happened when I chose to fix my attention on God today? And when I recognized what he wanted from me, and then I promptly responded. What happened when I chose not to? I brought with me today on the table a green page of Advent readings. It's titled, Jesus, Be in My Christmas. Will you commit yourself to faithfully reading these portions of Scripture each day? Or maybe you already have a guide for Advent. And if you do, will you commit yourself to spending time with with the word. The Lord is waiting to reveal all kinds of insights and truth to you if you'll take the time to read, to ponder, and to pray. But you've got to choose it. You have to do the wise thing just like the wise bridesmaids did. Don't be caught unprepared when you get to Christmas Eve. Perhaps you're feeling far away from the Lord, like the prodigal son who walked away from intimacy with his father and exchanged it for the toys of the world. Be encouraged. You, too, can be home for Christmas. Today you can head home to intimacy with him. It's never too late to prepare room in your heart for him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for loving us enough to tell us how to prepare for Christ's return. We confess that so often we let the world crowd out any attempts, to sit before you, to be still and to know that you're God, to learn from you, to receive our direction and our orders and our guidance from you. Help us, Lord, to be like the wise bridesmaids who prepared. We thank you that each day there's a new beginning with you and that we can begin those attempts even today on the second Sunday of event. And we continue to pray.
1: here at the table are fitting symbols of life and of health. The bread has a wonderful aroma and it proclaims joy. It's also a filling food. It relieves our extreme hunger and what's our appetite for a savory feast that's before us. Just think of the warm bread that your your restaurant server brings to your table while you wait for the chef to prepare your meal. Wine is strong. It too is a pleasant aroma that prepares prepares us for good food and fellowship. It has many different and complex tastes. It can be strong and smooth and bitter and linger on your lips at the same sip. The bread which we break and the cup which we bless are the body and the blood of Jesus. When we see these symbols, they help us see Christ. We believe his promises so we eat and drink in faith. As we do this, we do taste the Lord and know that he is good and that his promises are yea and amen to us. Taste and see that the Lord is good
0: thank you for listening to this audio recording from Christ Church of Livingston County if you would like further information about anything in this recording the Bible about Christ Church of Livingston County or wish to make any other related inquiry please feel free to contact us through our website ChristKirkMI.com that's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I dot com. Again, thank you and blessings.